0: Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another Kraken installment of the MapRound show. Uh, with me on the line is an incredible talent, uh, an incredible thought leader, so super grateful to have her here. Her name is Caroline Go- Goido. Rather. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Matt. Delighted to be here.
0: Well, the privilege is really all mine. Um, So uh, we're going to get into a whole bunch of things, your books, and a whole bunch of amazing work that you're doing uh, in the community of business and thought leadership, um, not only in the UK, but around the world. Uh, But for our viewers uh, around the world who haven't potentially read any of your books or don't know anything about who who Caroline is, uh, why don't you give us the elevator pitch? Uh, Who are you? What are you about? Uh, what, What matters to you? Kick us off.
1: I help leaders take adrenaline and turn it into authority and presence and gravitas, which is a word we'll probably get to. And it's a lot about the journey that I've had because I was the drama student who was told she had no presence. You've got no energy. You have no gravitas. They didn't say that, but they would have done if they could. You've got no resonance in your voice. And I have had to, over the last couple of decades, unpick what we do when someone says, you need more presence, you need more charisma, you need more gravitas. Because the belief that limits people is that I can't change. And I know, because I see it happen in five minutes with clients, that we can change so quickly when we want more gravitas, more charisma, more presence. And my job is about helping people find the fast ways in that they can practice every day. A bit like advanced driving lessons, it's blindingly obvious when you get it, but you've got to practice.
0: So when you say gravitas, like let's land that for everybody. What do you mean? What does gravitas, like, what does gravitas look like in the world of a of a business leader?
1: So a business leader with gravitas is someone. I think the simplest metaphor and the one that most people get is it's the voice on a flight when you hit turbulence. It's the pilot's voice that says, "We're going through a pocket of turbulence." we'll be out in 10 minutes, just put your seatbelts on and we'll be through quickly. And you go, oh, phew, this person's got this, I'm safe in their hands. That's what personally gravitas means to me. When I wrote the book, I did a lot of research on it and one thing I went to is Aristotle and I modernized Aristotle, which is probably quite a cheeky thing to do. But he talks about ethos, logos and pathos and I turned that into knowledge, What you know about the world what you know about yourself plus passion your emotion your energy what spikes you what makes you alive in the world knowledge plus passion plus purpose your big drivers your motivators your common purpose because charisma is often about ourselves gravitas is often about a wider common purpose and then minus anxiety so knowledge plus passion plus purpose minus anxiety and if you think about any great leader that you admire in tech, in politics, beyond in business, they often have those four qualities. They have mm-hmm. knowledge, they have passion, they have purpose, and they manage their anxiety.
0: Interesting, the anxiety piece. It's almost like, it's like, I'm sorry? <laughs> it's like, I got the passion, the purpose, the knowledge, and it's like, anxiety. It's like, what? It's like a little bit yeah, of center yeah, yeah. for me, right? Um, so let's, let's double click on that. Like, where did that come from? Like I get, you know, a lot of people, even, even I like have a moments in my life, like in my executional day, if you like, where I'm like, oh shit, like I'm feeling pretty anxious. Um, and a lot of people take pills for this sort of thing. Like I get it. Uh, but in from like, from a context of leadership, like where does this role of managing anxiety, you know, come into play and, and why does it matter so much?
1: So again, you know, I went back to the ancient world. I'm actually just going to pause, Matt. I'm going to reset my camera because it's doing something.
0: For yeah, me. you've gone all, uh, you've gone. There, there you go. It. There you go. Bright and shiny. Here we go. So off you go.
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <All> <laughs> it's good.
0: fine. All good.
1: I go back to the ancient world on this. There's a lovely, Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor and he said, how can you lead others if you can't first lead yourself? Now, we can all think of leaders in various countries who lose their control. They become dysregulated. They, they, they start letting emotion overrun them. Now, sometimes that is powerful. But to Marcus Aurelius's point, if you are leading people, you're leading their nervous systems. It's like the pilot of the plane when you hit turbulence, panicking, sounding fast, stressed, worried. Or a friend of mine got on a flight recently, which suddenly hit something as they came down. They don't know what they hit. And then suddenly went straight up back in the air again. And she said she kind of felt the G-force. And the pilot didn't say anything. And that made it worse. So it's understanding as a leader that your voice, your energy is changing the nervous systems of the people that you lead. And that's where minus anxiety is actually really, really important to think about. You've got to be able to handle it. Because otherwise, you're you're dysregulating your audience.
0: Mm. One of the things um, I was watching um, was your TED Talk um, on the role of the voice tonality and things like that. Um, And it struck me as being a key thing for us to talk about today. Because um, if, if I think about Winston Churchill, for instance... You know, uh, or I, it was just, it was um, one of the American presidents. Freaking named escapes me Not, but he did a series of radio addresses during the Second World War. Oh, FDR, yeah,
1: FDR. Yeah. And can't, yeah. My
0: my son's initials are like F D, like because of that guy. And I can't, even, like, should have just gone with my son's name anyway. But um, but yeah, man, he did like a series of radio addresses, and you know, to to galvanize people, to motivate people, to. Um, to lead people with an idea that hey, we're going to win this thing, and as hard as it's going to be, like we're going to overcome. Um, and this amazing like Netflix series I've watched about, uh, you know, um, the yeah, UK prime minister like doing these similar sorts of things, even that one with was like the king with the stutter in England. Yes right? It was a a similar thing. It was like, you know, and geez, like he had to stutter and he somehow managed to like overcome that, right? Through coaching and so forth. Uh, I'll bring up the series for everyone in a moment. But um, my question though is like voice tonality, like what's the role of that in communication and leadership?
1: It's massive is the answer to that. Uh, It's it's the kind of secret source of great leadership and the problem for most of us is that we are unconscious of our voices because it's out breath. And we breathe so many times a day that thinking about breathing would just be really complicated. It's like thinking about our heartbeats. But sometimes, in order to harness something, you've got to make it conscious, which is why it's a bit like driving lessons. You know, sometimes you have to be consciously really incompetent first, get to understand the clutch and get to understand the brakes and the gears if you're in an automatic and go through that process so that you can control the vehicle. Voice is the same. If you understand that voice is out-breath and that every pause is an in-breath and that when you think about the emotion you want an audience to feel as you breathe in, your voice will then change. We start to realize that we can harness and control our voice as a tool to move other people through emotion like a movie director does. But that, I mean, that makes it sound a bit too conscious. I was working with a group today who are involved in tech in London, in the UK, and they're all about to lead their teams, this big business through a big transformation. And it's about to IPO as well. So the pressure's on. And we were talking a lot about, they were thinking about what they're saying. They've got the comms for this message really clear. They know why they're doing it what they're not doing is two things. One, they're not putting themselves in the audience's shoes. And that means that they're not being emotionally empathetic to what they need to lead their audiences through. So if you're about to lead an audience through transformation, first, maybe get them curious. Then maybe present the pain point, make them feel worried about the environment they were going into. Then make them feel excited about the vision. And then perhaps make them curious or excited about how they action this. So it's not just, I mean, it's obvious in some ways, it's not just what I say, but it's the emotional resonance that carries the words. And that's why we don't like an email when someone's trying to convince us. We want to hear their voice because we get the music, we get the sound.
0: So Caroline, I am um, curious to understand. Like, what's more important? Is it the structure of information that you deliver, or is it the tonality within within which you deliver it? Because my sense is is like we're we're like hardwired for stories. You know, it's like Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and we all know where that went. <laughs> so like, yeah, you know, like we we get we're we're kind of like you know hardwired for stories, and I think we have very finely tuned um let's just say um i don't know i want to say like bullshit radars like when it comes to mm, like this yeah. this because like you could be an you could have an amazing story you could deliver it tonally correctly but this the way that you deliver it meaning the structure of information if it's not right like people are like uh-uh. like it's a reason why so much Dude, like it's a, it's the reason why you hate one series but you love another. Like my wife and mm-hmm. I just finished um uh, the Last Kingdom, also set in the UK, and like we couldn't like, but like we were binge washing this thing because the story we were just so invested in the structure of the story and the characters and the ambiguity of like the, the decision-making and who's, and it was like unpredictable. So it was novel and you know what I mean? Like versus say something mm-hmm. that was, that that's not structured the right way where there's no depth to the story or the characters within it. And so you start to switch off. You're like, no, nah, I've got too many other things to, 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 to too many other options. Right. Um, So how important is the structure of story and what's your advice to CEOs, startup founders, leaders, visionaries who need to get the story out into the world in a way that's going to resonate?
1: Yeah, that's such an important question. And I'm absolutely with you that great communication is like a great film. You've got to have a great – the the, the screenwriter is the god of any production, right? Because if you've got – the words have to be right first, and then sort out the sound and the visuals and do the rehearsal and get it and get the tech in place. So my advice really on this, and it goes back to something I was working with this group on today, is that it's so much about, as you say, framing and story. There's a, a fascinating man called Paul Zack, who you may have come across, you may even have interviewed. He's the vampire neuroeconomist. And the reason they call him that is he takes a lot of blood in his research and he's fascinated by the neurochemistry of the dramatic arc. You know, when you watch a movie, like you said about The Last Kingdom, great TV series, why does it hook you? And his big thesis is that great stories, because he's tested, I mean, it's not just a thesis, he's tested it by taking lots of blood from his, um, you know, his, his studies. And he says, great stories spike cortisol first. The problem Space, the adrenaline that focuses us, that makes us really want to pay attention because there's a problem we need to solve. And then when you get the release, when the character is transformed or they have an epiphany, that releases oxytocin, which is the hormone of connection. And when he spikes that sequence of hormones in his research, when it's about a cancer charity, a children's cancer charity, people give money to that charity when he tells a story with a very specific sequence. And so what that means for founders, for business leaders, something we were working on today, use a structure that I learned from Donald Miller's story brand work, and I teach on a lot. So simple. First up, what's the grunt test? What is it That if a cave person were listening to your story, would make them sit up and pay attention. How can this help me survive? So today, my group are talking about a transformation. But they're talking to a group of people who bill on um, recruitment of top leaders in tech businesses. And so although this is about change, ultimately, the grunt test is this is going to make us more successful as a business. And then you get to the pain place. What's the challenge? The challenge is the climate out there. The challenge is it's getting more difficult. So then you get to the vision. How is this transformation going to help us step up, make ourselves different from everyone else in the game? And then you get to the plan. This is what we're going to do. The three things that you will need to action this week, the three things that you need to action over the next three months. And that story brand structure is like a little mini movie and if someone says to you, oh, Matt, could you tell us about the uh, elevator pitch for this new business? You can just go grunt test, pain, vision, plan. Got it. Mm-hmm. So it's a very lean structure.
0: Pain. How do you decide on... Can, can we maybe just walk through that uh, a bit more? Um, because uh, I'm curious, like what what other formats does a grunt test take? You know what I mean? Like, so let's take i don't know it's something simple like storytelling everybody like i have a, so i'm a let's just say i'm a founder of a startup i've raised you know 20 million dollars um what is it and i'm in like i don't know let's just say the automation uh, space for enterprise companies it's, as a bet maybe a bad example we can choose other ones but what would i'm trying to make this tangible so when you when you say a grunt test what what does this actually look like you know in a real world <laughs>
1: So the answer is it depends. And the thing that is most important is to decide what's my intention here and who am I communicating to? So say you're going up in front of private equity, for example, step into the shoes of the analysts, the partners, and think about what is it that they need from me here to know whether this business is something they want to invest in. And it's that moment, the you decide the grunt test by really taking a moment to step out of your own body and step into the body of a partner of a private equity firm or the analyst that's just left Goldman Sachs to come and work for them and think about what do they need to hear from me and my team and in what order? And what's the one thing that will get them to sit up and pay attention? So when I work with corporate leaders on board or ex stuff, it's often asking them when this leadership group talk about what matters to them, what are the five phrases that they always use? Those phrases are going to form your grunt test mm. because you're getting to someone's deep drivers and the deep drivers when you're presenting a business might be different each time. Even a different investor, you know, might a group of investors may all have a different grunt test. Now, if you're presenting them all together, you've got to think of who it is particularly that you want to influence and what the common drivers might be. But if you're going up to different investors, you know, work out their their individual drivers and present those as the grunt test.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, How much of a role does surprise uh, take in that? I mean, because it's kind of like, is the Mm grunt test a phrase or is it maybe a story? And I find like, especially in the startup space, and we're going to get into like the pace of technology and things like that. um, But there's this... um, there's this idea of surprise, you know, and I think oftentimes people love to talk about the solution and they don't set it up. And I think one of the most overlooked words in business is context. Like if you change the context, you change everything. Um, and oh, so, yeah. yeah. And so like um, if I'm pitching to a room full of investors and I want to be different, A, and probably just i want to be understood uh, and i think that's a really important um jobs to be done when it comes to communication and you're pitching to an investor so, so um and, and, and like and i think what what i've learned is to bake your personal story into it in a story right like that for me is the is a large part of the grant test um So, how much of it is surprise? How much of it is story based? How much of it is phrase based? I don't know; it's context dependent. uh, To my point there, but like, what's your what's your words of wisdom to a startup founder looking to raise money? Like, here's how you start. Here's a good way to start uh, straight out of the gates.
1: So, the odd example, and it's slightly kind of it may feel slightly left field. I learned how to do this when I was pitching my book to A-list actors, because I needed to get to A-list actors for my first book, to interview them about confidence. And a fundraiser said to me, listen, if you want to get to Cape Blanchett or Helen Mirren or Ewan McGregor, go online and watch all their interviews, read their New York Times interviews, find out everything they say about what drives them. My camera's doing funny things again. It is. I'm not used to winter. A fundraiser said to me, if you want to get to A-list actors, go online and find out about everything that drives them. Watch their interviews, read the New York Times piece they did, and cook it down to about five or six values, phrases, keywords that they always use. And that gives you a sense of what someone is driven by. And then be creative go for a walk, go for a run, go for a swim, sit in the garden, look up at the sky, and think about if I was this group of investors, how would I want Caroline to pitch her business? And it is a creative process because what you're doing is you're getting beyond the, now I'm going to tell you about our business and we're going, you know, it's so boring to do that. You might find that you start with a question. As you say, Matt, you might start with your story. But I think a good rule is always go in in medias res. You know, dive straight into the action like a good film. Don't do that awful warm up where you tell them what you're going to tell them or you say thank you for having me because it cuts people off. And I think that thing as you say about surprise them with energy, with verve, with creativity. I love a set of questions. Mm. That captures attention much more than today we're going to be talking about
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um I think one of the key things is is to take the investor and put them into your story. Like if you're in the sustainability space like and you know the investor has like two kids, you know, so the year is 2030, you know, your two children are, you know, here's the problem. You know what I mean? Like doing things creatively I love that. Doing things creatively like that as opposed to, hi, we, you know, we solve this sustaining problem and it's, uh, you know, it's worth a trillion dollars. And, you know, if we only get 1% of the trillion dollar market, like you're going to be rich and we're going to be rich. And, you know, it's like, da, da, da. So boring. (laughs) They've heard that
1: four times already today. And the word that you used, Matt, which I love is you. You is the power word. You will know, you will understand, you will have experienced that. That's what really lights up people's brains.
0: Mm. Um, So maybe let's change gears for for a bit. We spoke about um, the pace of technology, obviously working a lot with corporate leaders. Um, So what are you seeing on the ground, like in terms of leadership, trying to manage the pace of technology developments and and things like that? Like what's going on uh, from your uh, perspective
1: Today being in this very fast paced, high energy, highly successful business, there was a really clear message that we were talking about as a group. And it's that they have to go, You know, if you're in, a, in the tech space, you have to go fast. There is no alternative. You know, Your Slack is pinging at a pace that you probably need to keep up with. But there's a different gear when you get in front of an audience that you need to be able to change into. And it's a more human gear. In particular, it's a gear that allows you, whether you're on Zoom or in a room with people, in a huddle or in a big town hall, when we talk, what we say is as much about our pauses as it is about what we say. Because in your pauses as a speaker, what you're doing is paying attention to your audience. You're noticing how a message is landing. That would be true with a group of investors or with your team and a good speaker is almost dancing with an audience they land that origin story they watch how the investors process it and that then tells them where they go next and it's like you're calibrating moment by moment as a good speaker how is this working when we're going at 180 miles an hour you know we just don't notice so i know when people are in that fight or flight zone because they say to me I I just, I just gabble. I go so fast. I can't seem to stop. I can't seem to pause. I don't notice what the audience are doing. And when I sit down, I can't remember what I said. If that's happening to you, that's fight or flight. And the thing that actors do to go from, Oh, I can't do it to a space of calm where they can be really present to an audience is they take a half and a half is half an hour. And I talk a lot about this in find your voice, which is the third book. It's half an hour where an actor is just really present to their body, their breath, what's in the room, music that they've got playing. They're not checking their phone. They're not rushing. They're not late. And what that means is that when they get in front of an audience, they can really be present to everything that happens in the room. And audiences notice that and they love it and they remember you.
0: Um, Caroline, you mentioned you reached out to uh, actors to interview them um what was your pitch to them like i'm curious to change the context of like you're on stage talking i know a lot of founders do but i would suggest that i would say over 90 percent of them are using email to reach out to investors reach out to prospects uh, in America, just for more context, maybe we should just call it the context show. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but in, in America, no one answers their phones. Like if I, in South yeah. Africa, I've, like I've moved to the States like three months ago. So when um, when I, if I phone 10 CEOs in South Africa, like eight of them will answer the phone. In America, if iPhone 10 CEO is like, you'll be lucky if one does. And so the Mm. role of digital channels and digital acquisition and storytelling on digital and email and things like this is like, it's so important. Um, And so again, it's changing the the structure of story into an email. And I'm curious to, uh, for our audience to learn from you. I mean, obviously actors is, I would say it's a difficult uh, segment to get attention of like they're in the attention oh, yeah. business um, and so I'm curious to understand what your process was in terms of the structure of what your story was you know to put to, to interview these actors um, and so what was that and then number two like who did you get a response from
1: it's so interesting the first thing to say is this was 2008 so the gatekeepers had more power, there was less direct access, and I think it was a less noisy world. But I think the strategies are the same. My project was about helping people to speak with confidence. So when I researched each actor, I looked for what they talked about when they talked about confidence. And I I made sure that the first three sentences of the email was absolutely framed My project was always the same. It was about helping people to speak with confidence, but it was framed in their language. So each email was slightly different. And I also thought very carefully about the title of the email and made sure that I used some language that either their publicist or they, if I was in direct contact with them, had used in the past. I I had such a good success rate. In the first week, Helen Mirren Kate Winslet and Kate Blanchett all said yes. And then as any good founder knows, once you've got three big names to say, you know, we've talked to Meta and Google and Amazon about this project, you know that you're going to get through the door of a couple of other places. Yeah. So that was that was the key.
0: So, um, yeah, I, that's a, actually a very really good point, right? It's kind of like the more referenceability you have um, it's kind of like, it gives you more credibility, you know. Um, <clears throat> and I think one of the things that's interesting to maybe double down on here is that, the you know, like, so with startups, they're always trying to talk to, cu- they should, not always, they should be talking to customers to try to figure out like, what is the right product for them to build so that they can get to product market fit and then ultimately go and scale and become unicorns. That's the whole dream, right? Mm. Um, and so when they are, talking to customers, doing the actual interview or conducting the actual interview. In your case, you're trying to figure out what they know about like how to speak with confidence. If you don't ask the right question, you don't get the right answer. Um, And many people are just not equipped. Like they don't have the skill to ask the right question, to get the right answer, to build the right product. Um, and there's a book called The Mom Test, where it's kind of like you know, no one's going to tell you you suck to your your face, you know. Like mom, will, your mom's your mom's always going to tell you it's a great idea, Matt. You know what I mean? Bless her. My mom passed last year, but you know, oh, like I'm sorry, no, it's all good. Well, it's not, but it's it's all good if you know what I mean. Um, and um, and so you know, and even like I've been running customer discoveries recently, and you know, I was like, shit, am asking the right question here? You know, um, and so what's your advice around like constructing questions? I mean, there's obviously yes, no's, like there's a different thing to an open-ended Avoid, question. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, when you were conducting these interviews with uh, Dame Helen Mirren and Kate Winslet and all these guys, like what was your th- strategy around the questions you would ask so that you had the right insight to then translate into a book, Gravitas?
1: It was quite a dance but there was a very straightforward strategy that I used because I, as well as being a voice person, I'm also an nlp neuro, can't say it, neuro-linguistic programming. I did a lot of that and I still use it all the time. And when I was asking questions, I was doing a lot of rapport building and matching language patterns. So if someone said, well, if we go two, two steps back, the first thing I would do is listen to interviews, as we've said, so that I had a real sense of what I wanted them to talk about. Now, in the product space, that may not be feasible, but you might know where you need to guide someone to. You might know the area that you need them to talk about. And then it's about taking their language and turning it into a question. So Matt, if I say, you know, what's your favorite place in the US? You've been here a few months. What's, what's your favorite place in the US? Denver, baby. What is it that you love about Denver?
0: Mm, uh, the mountains.
1: Tell me about the mountains. Where do you where do you like to go?
0: Well, anywhere. They're beautiful. Breckenridge. I can't wait for it to snow. You know, outdoors, nature, stuff like that.
1: So, when it snows, what will you be doing?
0: Hopefully, snowboarding. <laughs>
1: so you can see how how it works i'm following the thread of your interest mm. and if you keep using open questions and keep following the thread of someone's interest you end up getting down to a bedrock value and they'll go well i just cuz i love you know i love it i love the snow i love winter sports you know and and then you go, then you ask another question but i when i'm it, when i'm probing or interviewing i'm always and i do this with clients all the time as a coach and also as, as a pitcher, follow the thread of what drives someone and you'll really get to know what matters to them. And when we know what matters to someone, we can we can sell them things Cause for the good reason that we know what's gonna work. Mm. And it's not a sale in inverted commas, it's, it's giving someone something that they need because they've told you what they need.
0: Yeah, I love that. So I think oftentimes we're listening to respond, uh, not listening to understand um and even like when i conduct these interviews like like i don't really know where i'm gonna go i just let the conversation like kind of what we've done today right so far is to is to like it's it's the idea of layering so if you and i'm also i was trained as an nlp practitioner when i was in london i was very young then it was like 17 years ago um i don't i don't apply it but i understand i think it's for me the the value of linguistic programming was to understand um how people think less yeah. about like how to create like a you know you have a phobia to x and you must change like if you put change the phobia context into yeah if you get into the business world like and you start mirroring and matching people are like what the fuck is this guy doing <laughs> so like it's, it, it, yeah. it's shit like you got to be a real pro uh to do it right and it takes years so you know, it it anyway, it is what it is. Um, but this idea of uh, in, in NLP is also around peeling away the layer of the onion, right? To understand beliefs and values and things like this. So what I've done strategically to get to an insight is to work with like is to keep asking why. Like Matt, why does the why do the mountains matter to you? I no, they matter to me because it's it's pretty and I love being outdoors and what have you. But the, but why does that matter? Well I've got two young kids. Okay, so why does why do two young kids matter to you? Well, like now you've got me, right? But yeah. But if, if it you, is just
1: is, yeah. Yeah,
0: because it's like, well, come on, dude. Like it's the truth. Like I love Bad my rock. kids. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like now you've got me. So Matt, what would it mean to you if I could help you get access to the mountains more often to spend more time with your kids? Now you've really got me. How much does it cost? I don't know. It's a lot of money. I'm prepared to drop it all because it's… Yeah, it's,
1: anything. <laughs> you know what
0: I mean? You know what I mean? Versus like, well, you know, um, I could sell you like a nice little mountain bike trip. It's like, no, dude. Like you have to understand why people buy things.
1: The deep drivers that drive people. and And so when I was interviewing actors, it was just following the thread to those really deep values. And it's amazing how universal they are. But I I absolutely agree that NLP for me and its value was this state of curiosity and that lovely um, frame, Korzybski's frame, the map is not the territory. The idea that in a world where we're constantly bombarded with sensory information, we have to have our own map. We have to filter out information. So if you say to me, London, I have a specific map of the important places to go. If I asked you what your map of London looks like, it'd be totally different. And when we understand that our maps are unique to us, we start to listen with much more curiosity. And rather than being, I know, we're in that space that you're talking about where you just dig. And that is the powerful space for pitching. Mm-hmm. When I teach people to pitch, it's always that it's not about just presenting yourself. It's about asking great questions. People and I forget that.
0: And I think being also, I love what you said about being curious. You know, like uh, people always say to me, like, why do I do this show? And I'm like, well, there's a number of reasons. One is because I actually care <laughs> deeply yeah. about this uh, founder journey and like the, the suffering of entrepreneurs and stuff and helping them with conversations like this so that they can they, they can win, whatever winning means to them. Uh, but I think like being curious is is a very important principle, isn't it? Because if you are trying to build a product there's like the uh, there's one entrepreneur that's just so high on his own supply uh, around what he thinks the best solution should be um and won't talk to customers won't be curious about what the best solution is for them will just want to go there because that's what he thinks is right. he believes that he or she believes her intuition is more powerful than the customer's point of view, you know what I mean like okay yeah there's a there's a disconnect there um and so being open to and i suppose this is what you did with talking to these celebrities also was around being curious right like so like you weren't married to an idea about what would go into the book you didn't know you were open and I'm, please correct me if i'm off piste here but let's use another mountain snow <laughs> analogy uh, context uh but um but like you were open to what the best solutions and ideas could be so that people can actually speak with confidence and i would also go so far as to say that the reason why your book has done so incredibly well and you built a sort of like a mini empire off the back of your success with the book is because you were open to what the best solution was you weren't married to a preconceived idea is that great? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think that since I wrote that first book, it's become even more important. And I think there's lots of neuroscience out there at the moment that says people who are good at dealing with uncertainty, you know, welcome to our current time, are are curious. They're present and they're open and they're, they're able to kind of turn off as much as possible the predictive brain's desire to fix things and to be right. And they're able to sit with uncertainty, and I think for founders, that's the secret source, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because it makes us, as you say, flexible.
0: Well, the thing also, I love what you said there around sitting with uncertainty, because for me, what I I wrote this book uh, called Your Inner Game did very well, um, and um, I wrote about it was basically like twelve principles for high impact entrepreneurs, and and one of the, I was talking about uncertainty and how. Like there's the only certainty is uncertainty when you're a business owner and you're a visionary trying to change the world. Um, so you have to learn to sit with it. The only problem is it, it sucks. <laughs> like yeah, really, really. <laughs> it really fucking sucks, dude. Um, and like we're sitting with it and I, and, and like I, we, we're all human, right? We all have fear. We all have doubt. We all have insecurities. We all have moments where we don't believe in ourselves that this isn't going to work and you know i can't raise money and you have had 300 no's and like are you really prepared to take another no you know and like all all i know to be true uh, about super successful founders um you know like the ceo of peloton got rejected 300 times airbnb like like all the emails from like well-established venture capital firms you know that said no to them like they persevered right that was another one of the principles so Um, but the but the but the the leverage comes from having the capability and the power to sit with uncertainty and to say Mm. i'm prepared to suffer um without evidence that this is going to work you know what i mean like that takes a certain type of mindset to 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 do like it's not easy like you know i always say like anyone can be an entrepreneur but i can tell you for a fact it's not for you or for or for a lot of people out there uh, because it's too hectic It's too much. It's too much uh, uncertainty. And like we need certainty. Like Tony Robbins even says, like I need to be, there's four needs of the personality, isn't there? Like, you know, certainty, uncertainty. Like we need the certainty of certainty, but we don't want to be bored. So we need uncertainty. We need surprise. We need novelty. um, And we need significance and things like this. Anyway, my question though is like, what's your advice to a founder about sitting with uncertainty? Like you do it, I've done it, but I'm curious to get your your view.
1: I learn as, so act, I trained as an actor and acting is a fundamentally uncertain profession. And I think the tool that actors are given is to get into the body. And some founders will almost instinctively be doing this. We can either, I was taught this by a neuroscientist, the, the body's and brain's attention system is really limited. I can either be in my head psyching myself out, okay, it's the 307th no, this is never going to happen, we've burned through all our capital, I'm going to be a failure, you know, all of that stuff. We can do that in our heads or we can switch that off by coming back to I'm breathing. I can feel the shirt on my skin, I can feel the air on my face, I can see the cars driving around Clapham Common, And that brings me back to a sensory place where that inner chatter quietens down. And it's not the truth. It's just the story that we tell ourselves. And so for any founder, any entrepreneur, any business leader who's getting stuck, just go out, move, get into your body, go for a walk, swim, sit quietly and breathe for three minutes. I interviewed a major general for Gravitas who had been part of the Iraq war. And it was in in Basra, which was not good for the British army. And he said, every morning I just used to go for a run. And no matter what was happening, I ran around the Korean zone and it cleared my head. And I think that for a founder, it sounds simple, but we don't do it when we're locked up. And as soon as we move, it frees up our thinking, our creativity and our sense of handling uncertainty.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, even recently, my sister, I was telling you, she she lives out in Winchester in the UK and she came to visit me and it was like, we're just like, moving house sucks, but changing countries is a whole other animal. Um, and I was just having like, I was sitting here like literally on this desk next to me and I was just like feeling super overwhelmed. Like I was like, I was going to kill myself. I was like beating myself up and ah, having one of those really down days. And it's interesting, right? Like it's always like as a culture, it's kind of like, well, you're a, you're a man, you must man up. And it's like, well, why don't you just have a man down day? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I love that. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> you should have like a like. You should just like fuck it. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to work at a hundred percent today or 110. Like I'm just, I'm done. Like uh, uh, my energy is down. Like whatever. Um, and so, but the, the 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 challenge though is knowing when, like, to walk away. Mm, you so know, much, and to and to know. And like, and also to have like coping mechanisms, right? To so say, cool, well, you're suffering. Today is not your day. Walk away. Step away. Like yep. close the laptop and go for a walk. Go to the mountains. Like do something for you. And I love what you're saying, like get into your body because it's almost like go for a walking meditation. Yeah. You know, like I did that with my baby girl, uh, Ray. Oh. Um, uh, like last week, I was like, screw it. It's three o'clock. Close the laptop. And I just went for a walk. And I came back. I felt just totally revived, re-energized. I had new perspective. You know, thoughts come to you when you're not working, oftentimes.
1: And there's loads of great science on this, isn't it? That if we want the creative brain to kick in, get out of work. You know, so work is a strange concept, and sometimes, as you say, the big ideas come when we kind of let ourselves play. And that's that. that there's so much neuroscience to back that up about how the brain processes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't that thing like where you have the best ideas come when you're in the shower or something? Exactly, you
1: know? that space, that space, not to have to pressure ourselves.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it's an important trick, and it's like the idea of like working in your business and working on it. And I think that the working on doesn't mean you actually working on it. You know what I mean? Like working, yeah, you might working, be
1: running. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Go work on yourself. That's also working on your business because you are your business, especially when you're a startup. Uh, in many cases. Um, but Caroline, it's been great chatting to you. Um, I, just one more question and then I'll let you go. Um, you obviously like super successful. Uh, you've written multiple books. You're going to, you know, another book in the winds. Um, why do you do what you do? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning?
1: I had a job that I hated. And there was a moment where I got into this work that I do with voice helping people find their voices helping people take their anxiety their adrenaline and turn it into presence and power and authority and it just I found a job that I love more than anything else there is just it's a bedrock value for me the the feeling of watching an entrepreneur or a leader suddenly find their voice communicate land a message win business win a pitch get investment that is just the best feeling ever. And it's so easy for people to do that. And so it's one of those things that work is more fun than fun for me. If I won the lottery, I would still do it. And I was lucky to find it because I know what it's like to have a job that doesn't feel like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I love doing what I do. I look forward to like, what's in my day tomorrow? And then I'm like, Oh, cool. I'm doing three interviews, right? Because it's not this time well spent, you know. Um, And today was time well spent with you, I feel like, we should get you back and talk about some other stuff because I think like there are lots of of little rabbit holes I wanted to go down to uh, but just purely from from a lack of time perspective today so but anyway Caroline look uh, it's been a privilege having you here thank you for being on the show
1: my total pleasure Matt and I'd love to come back and talk more
0: anytime thanks everybody ciao ciao ciao